Kevin, it's an honor to have you on here in the green room. Uh, you're working on a uh, on a platform that really fascinates me that uh, I guess finally exists now, um, and it's going to be able to pump more more cash into the solar space, which uh, I think everyone listening already knows is a huge problem. And uh, you guys seem to have a very interesting solution. So first off, thank you for coming on. And uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, as well as tell us a little bit about what Finite is building. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. Um, Kevin Conroy, the founder of Finite. And what we launched recently is a public fund for uh, solar assets and investors of effectively any uh, dollar amount to invest in solar. So our minimum investment is $500 and it looks and feels very similar to a mutual fund that you buy probably regular course in your life. Um, but what we were finding was, you know, everyone from your $500,000 investor up to your family office that wanted to put you know, millions of dollars to work in the space really didn't have an avenue to do it. And so that's what we went out to create. So it's 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 almost like what you guys have identified is a way to give smaller check size investors like me or an angel investor to now participate in, I guess, help finance solar projects and renewable energy projects. Is that an accurate understanding? Yeah, so it's solar specific in this fund, but the way we think about it is solar is at a unique point of maturity where it's mature enough to be uh, kind of an investable asset class, hmm. uh, meaning it's large enough. It's kind of, you have a history of cash flows that you can point to and look at. Uh, it's not so large that you know, huge players are participating in it yet. So it's in this, kind of growth phase, it's a really nice area for a company like Finite to bring a product like this uh, live. But when we look down the road, we see a lot of sustainability in a similar trajectory as solar. So um, you can kind of speculate on different asset classes, but whether it's you know, forest projects, regenerative agriculture, uh, indoor agriculture, there's kind of vehicle electrification, energy efficiency, the whole gambit of your um, sustainable asset classes that we think are either at or entering a phase that we can build a fund around. Okay, so now what you're you're effectively, I guess, then to to fully understand this or appreciate this is solar has now matured over the last decade to be a, I guess, safe. In yeah, I was going to say, I can't say, you know, it's totally safe. There's, uh, I, I am, um, we can't promise returns, right? So, <laughs> sure. um, but, but it's mature, right? I mean, I think when I entered solar uh, seven years ago, it was really early. You oh. had leases and PPAs were the predominant way to go solar on your home. We just come out of the recession and there was, very little operating performance of how individuals, businesses would pay back a solar loan. Just nobody right. knew, right? And so we've gone from, I think, that phase to 
most of the originators today have bank partnerships. They're working with uh, mid to large regional or kind of nationwide banks. And you have institutional asset or institutional investors accessing the space. So what we've done is take that asset and really put it into a fund that is incredibly easy to access uh, or should be at least. It takes about a minute, maybe a minute and a half to go through our investor process. And over time, you'll be able to invest out of your retirement account. You'll be able to invest on the Fidelity or Schwab platform, just like you buy and sell a stock. Okay. So do I hear like it, it becoming an ETF someday in the future from the sounds of that, it? So, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to get into the, the weeds here pretty quick, but it is, when you think about um, SEC registered 40 act funds, right? You have mutual funds, which I think traditionally were very popular and have fallen out of favor slowly, but surely over the last 10 years. ETFs have taken up a lot of that slack. Um, and then there's what's called an interval fund, which is what we are. Hmm. If you look um, across those three funds, ETFs are traded. So you can buy in and out every second of the day if the market's open. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so mutual funds you buy once a day uh, and you can sell once a day. In both of those structures, you're often not actually buying from the fund. You're just buying from another investor. So it's kind of a traded product. For us, in the interval fund structure, if you buy a share, you're actually buying it from the fund. And so we're making a new share, selling it to you. And what that creates is a level of additionality. So okay. when you're putting money to work, it's actually going into the fund. Whereas an ETF and a mutual fund, it's just kind of traded between investors. Um, And then we, instead of allowing you to sell every day, which would prevent us from owning anything illiquid, we offer to repurchase the shares quarterly. And so we repurchase shares between five and 25% of the fund on a quarterly basis. And so what that lets you do is really, um, probably not surprising to people solar loans are not a very liquid security there's you know it's a fairly um illiquid market but that fund structure allows you to manage it appropriately and and avoid some bad investor experiences okay so then if for all the people who learned about the stock market due to gamestop last year um (laughs) is this is this akin to the buying and selling behavior that happens with options when you're talking about ETFs and mutual funds versus an interval fund, which in your guys' case, it allows you guys to buy and sell actual shares in the fund as opposed to secondaries or options and things of that nature. Is that a correct understanding? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it of course depends on your reference with GameStop <laughs> and if it, how involved people were in that. But, um, but yeah, we felt that in order to give, uh, we kind of self-regulated and we chose this route of uh, having SEC regulation, FINRA oversight. Um, if we're bringing $500 investors into the sustainable world, it needs to be in a way that is highly regulated. That's kind of the appropriate way to do it. 
Um, we didn't want it to be something that, you know, you could claim accreditation as an accredited investor, even though you really weren't. Uh, this explicitly a non-accredited investor can invest in um, or unaccredited investor, which is really exciting because it takes what is something I would consider a very exclusive asset class and right. makes it open to everyone. When I say very exclusive, you know it's exclusive when a billion-dollar family office doesn't have good access to it. Uh, so it's kind of from that level all the way to you know, $500. Okay, so then I think that's a perfect segue into trying to understand more of this platform. If you could, for the entire audience, could you break down, here's the problem that we've identified. You've already mentioned that lack of access is a huge, huge component of what inspired the creation of Finite. But as it stands today, what is the biggest challenge you found? And what is the platform that you guys have built today? And Naturally, you've gone through the SEC and there were probably multiple hills and valleys that you guys had to kind of power through to get to this stage where it's launched and people can put money into. But I'd love to dig into that side because it seems there's there's some interesting storylines that we can kind of learn from here. <laughs> Yeah, and we can we can pick that one apart maybe one by one. I mean, I think <laughs> absolutely that what I kind of tell people is a lot of people think the SEC is the going to be the problem in our process. And to be candid, they were yeah. very supportive. Uh, they, they were uh, one of the easier parties. Um, yeah, and and that's okay. You know, I would say I think flies in the face of a lot of. Uh, maybe preconceived notions on, on their process, but we spent a lot of time with our attorneys drafting the documents in a way that um, I think covered a lot of things they historically have had problems with in these funds. Um, but it goes so far beyond the SEC because we also have to have a bank custodian for these assets and a transfer agent, a valuation agent. You have to get audited, right? And so one of the things that I think has been true for a while, but is particularly true right now when everyone's pretty busy, firms don't necessarily want to work with new fund managers. <laughs> like our, our bank custodian is U S bank and you know, they, they service huge customers. And even if we're moderately successful, we're still going to be one of their smaller clients. I mean, it takes decades to be one of their huge clients. And so just getting in the room for some service providers was tough. Um, but then, of course, getting the documents to a point of SEC submission was important. And then, you know, we have uh, the fund has its own board of trustees, um, which is kind of a governance function. But mm -hmm. That board document, board book, as people would kind of refer to it, is a, for us was a 1,200-page uh, book, which you, know, you just don't think of um, many early-stage companies having to deal with that, right? Their board books are like maybe 10 slides going through financials and key initiatives. So I think that for us was a pretty big maturing element where we want to have the nimbleness of a startup, but recognize we are not right. People are trusting us with their investor dollars 
and we can't fail fast. It's kind of a, uh, an element of the, of our business that is not, um, similar to other startups and, um, forced us to act, I think highly mature in a highly regulated environment. So it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, I imagine this is the case for a lot of fintech kind of companies. Um, but it feels a lot like the access to credit cards or charge cards that Brex did, which I imagine wasn't easy either trying to find a bank partner to then work with in order to just get their credit card created and such. You didn't have the Marquettas of the world, which you can just go right. to and get your credit card created or banking as a service platforms that you could just API into these days because yeah. you're, you're working with an industry that historically is very paper pencil or Excel sheet um, and Windows Vista. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's almost like you guys needed to know or have the foresight um, or you have that foresight to determine that putting this fund together and bringing that ability of access and opening up a brand new pool of capital to help fund a electrification effort was the big thing that's allowed you guys to get to this stage. So what was it like in those early days just before, because I, I'm sure you didn't, no one wanted to sit down and write 1200 pages. <laughs> If you didn't feel yeah. super confident that you're building something that people would definitely want and need, especially when you're talking climate related. Yeah. I mean, for us, the first step was getting the right investors. Hmm. I mean, I think the idea was one that was a known problem. Mm -hmm. You've seen other companies trying to do it. Kind of ironically, a lot of the solar originators started out offering investors access to the space. If you look at Mosaic and Wonder, they both enabled kind of a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. Hmm. And they saw a good traction with that, but you can't really scale peer-to-peer. -peer. It's it's almost a guaranteed inhibitor to your growth. Um, Could you clarify peer-to-peer -peer a little bit more? Peer-to-peer. -peer. So um, I go out, I build a solar system, and there's a million dollars of debt for that mm -hmm. system. I then have to go match it with investors. And so I would go to you and maybe 50 other people and say, hey, can you each invest $20,000? Um, in theory, that gives kind of this nice access to the asset class. But what ends up happening is you're, you're constantly dealing with a mismatch of investor appetite and deal flow. Um, and you have binary outcomes, right? So you and I could both invest in one of those deals, look and feel very similar at the onset. I could lose all my money. You could make your seven, eight percent return. And it's kind of just luck of the draw, which really is inappropriate for uh, unaccredited investors. And even most high net worth investors don't want to have that single asset type of exposure. And so we saw the problem of access and what we went out and tried to do was figure out how to kind of safely enable people to access, but it was not a glitzy um, proposition. <laughs> Anytime you're talking to investors and, and telling them you're going to definitely have to deal with the SEC, that's tough. Um, and so 
that's where we started. And we felt if we had a good initial pool of investors, that would help us a lot. And it did. I think not having the investor base that we had would have um, resulted in us not succeeding or getting to a point of getting the product live. So it's, um, it's almost so. like your team were or were or are your current investors that were willing to go through the slog and probably like the bare minimum financial requirements you need to hit to even get the door open with the SEC and these bank players and such, because it was access to capital that you guys were trying to open up. You were saying, hey, here's this new market and exposing individual investors or any investors to a single loan in this case doesn't make sense. So bundling it up, I guess, kind of like how bonds work. Um, and it's just a series of bundled up loans and then it's traded and you can buy into that full bond and then the performance is spread across all the different, I guess, assets that you have nested under that is what the idea was. It was just who was going to be the person to put together the team, which in this case was investors and people with previous, uh, experience which i imagine you learned being one of the early inv- players at dividend yeah, yeah i mean and, and we have an internal team so it's not just investors but i mean if you look at um some of our investors powerhouse being one that just put out a piece on why they invested they have a lot of connectivity to the space right so mm-hmm. immediately you know we've been able to kind of call on them and say hey do you have connectivity to this originator? Do you have connectivity to this um, asset provider, if you will? So that's someone uh, building a solar system, lending into a solar system, or just providing a service to a group of kind of installers doing that. So we've we've leveraged our installer base or our uh, investor base a lot, um, and that's enabled us to bring in. I mean, if you look at our team. Um, we have the former chief investment officer of Anthem Insurance on our team. That's a guy that managed over $30 billion of fixed income, primarily fixed income. Insurance portfolios are, are usually, you know, 80, 90% fixed income. So that's just not the type of um, hire you usually have on a early stage pre-product company, but, you know, it was a direct result of our investor base. And he has been, you know, driving force and getting us to where we are um, just given all of his experience, not only investing, but um, starting funds and uh, his fairly extensive background. So that's when we talk about our investor base and kind of early employees, it was a super important factor in us getting this thing live. Okay. So you're building towards this fund, which is now live investors unaccredited investors can now invest into, I guess, a spread or a fund that's kind of like a bond where there's multiple different solar loans that are nested under it. And, you know, you, you get the aggregate of the returns those loans provide. And by consequence of participating in this fund, you're effectively helping get more solar out there into the market, which directly drives down greenhouse gases, climate, all that kind of fun jazz. So you've built your, you got your investors, you now have your early team. There's a 1200 page document in that process. 
on the very short and easy SEC process and a bunch of other things like finding bank custodians and such that you mentioned. Let's talk through that process. How do you as a founder go, great, I got the hard part done, or at least in your high head, you got the hard part done. You just convinced a rock star set of team members and investors to come join in on building this fund. What's next? How, what, (laughs) what was that experience like? Yeah, well, and and the other thing I should add is I'm a non-technical founder, right? I mean, my expertise is is more, (laughs) yeah is more financial and kind of project finance background. So what we found was um, there was actually a lot of technology to build. Really? Um, Yeah. Believe it or not, you cannot buy a mutual fund from the fund very easily. It's a direct to consumer product that doesn't exist. It's a totally different element of tech than I think anyone really talks about because it's such a, nuance but we just wanted to offer our fund directly right we wanted to do it um on the computer or uh through an app and that is a novel idea in the world that we operate so what's the traditional process like if i can't log into schwab and just be like hey i want to buy into this mutual fund that's where it's all through schwab fidelity they're called the platforms Mm -hmm. and so you're just kind of expected to go on the platforms. But the big problem with that is if you invest through Schwab, I have no idea you're an investor. I just see Schwab as the investor. And so in our view, we felt that launching future funds, we wanted to know our investors. We wanted to communicate with their impact, how the fund was doing and have that kind of one-to-one relationship that created uh, its own, uh set of challenges <laughs> beyond just the sec and regulation and having all the partners in place to be buttoned up on that we had um how do we actually give investors access beyond going through schwab fidelity and what's the importance of knowing the investor as opposed to because i imagine most if you take the silicon valley textbook for building the next big thing or building the next Uber, they would have just been like, hey, go to Schwab and piggyback off of them. And who cares? You'll eventually be able to know them. What made that so important in in this fund that you were trying to build up? Yeah, it's interesting because I think the Schwab and Fidelities are a platform. We will use them as a platform. We're not kind of saying sure. we'll never use them. Sure. But when you think about our product, and communicating impact with you, right? And what's the impact of your dollar? That's something you can't do with a Schwab or Fidelity investor. And we felt it was a pretty core component to what we're offering. I think over time it becomes um, more or less, depending on how you want to look at it. But you can imagine if we want to do a second fund and I can kind of, uh, ping you through the app and say, hey, is this a fund you'd be interested in uh, or rank assets you're interested in investing in? We can build a lot of momentum ahead of time by just being able to kind of softly communicate with those investors. And that's something that I mean, um, funds challenge, funds are challenged with today because they can't really build a brand. Uh, it's just kind of hoping that they get ranked in Morningstar as a 
you know, good fund manager and good product. It, it's it's almost, I wouldn't even say brand, it's more community That's because right. you're not attracting, I, I don't imagine you're attracting investors that are necessarily looking for just the biggest gains possible, but they're looking for the best gains or the ideal assets to invest in in climate. So it's very climate-centric investing that's driving people to finite and the solar x fund in this case hence it's a key necessity to be able to tell people here's the impact your dollars had directly is that a fair playback of what you just said fair playback with some uh, assumptions built in that are similar to assumptions we had the one clarification is we're actually seeing more interest from non-climate people, your traditional finance people in the space. And that's a whole different rabbit hole to go down, but climate people actually are not, um, they can be very supportive, but we have found a lot of times they're very vocal. And they actually, when you talk to them about investing in a fund that deploys project capital, they're kind of like, "Mm, well, maybe. Whereas traditional finance people say, this is great. I can get a, you know, we project our target returns are six to 8%. That's two to three times what you can get in the market right now. And so finance people are kind of like, that's pretty good. I'd rather be in this product. They like that there's low volatility, there should be low volatility. And they like that we can access more. So we've been a little surprised. I expected our first hundred investors to be, full climate people that did not care about return. Um, they are quite the opposite. And it's it's a benefit of our product. We can, our investor base, the, I was saying the benefit of our product is we actually appeal to both yield-based investors and oh, yes. climate people. The, the benefit of our product is we can appeal to both your very traditional yield-focused investor, and we can also appeal to your... Uh, family individual who's trying to decarbonize their portfolio and you know both sides can have motivations on impact and things we need to be tracking and yield hurdles but what we found is one of the benefits of solar is you can really check both boxes um, with a lot of investors and that's something that we've benefited from because we're seeing a lot of interest on the return driven side over the kind of climate impact side. So in that in that long, arduous process of building this platform, it seems like what you identified is the finance people actually find this really exciting. And while there are climate finance people, um, a la you, <laughs> as a perfect prime example, um, it, it almost feels as if you guys were able to early test the funds concept as you are going through the hoops and hurdles that are there to put in regulation, which naturally is a great way to protect people that are making these investments. So it's a necessity. And uh, I imagine a a good necessity that's going to give confidence to people that you survived this long um, to get through those checks and balances. But I'm really fascinated. Obviously, your background's in finance and you've also done climate finance at Dividend. So what what led you or enabled you to go ahead, based on your past history, 
to identify that trend that, hey, investors, just general investors who aren't necessarily looking for climate investments are going to find this as a really interesting opportunity for themselves? Yeah, I mean, we've seen... A bit of a loaded question. Even in the last... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, part of it is, is sure. luck with timing, right? You, you, I could not have predicted, I don't think anyone could have predicted the massive flow mm-hmm. into ESG. And then I think the subsequent eye-opening of, uh, what is that ESG product? I mean, if you look at Q2, you get about a thousand new ESG ETFs um, kind of launched, thousand. we'll call it. Of the a thousand of those eight hundred and fifty are just relabeled, so that's a fund that used to be you know coal investor ETF is now ESG sustainable energy ETF brought to you by BlackRock right and so I think that trend towards um, more marketing of ESG it's been helpful in that investors say. Yeah, we should consider that. I mean, governance is a good thing just in general. Uh, environmental, social are important. It's hard to have all three, but um, it's kind of gotten people to start thinking about it. And I think in that you've you've started to see an investor base say, well, yeah, but we want actual uh, E, S, or G. And if we can get two out of three, that's great. If we can get three out of three, that's credible. But um, it's really hard to have all three in one package in a traded product. Uh, just kind of <laughs> if you think about the difference in asset classes. So we benefited from that whole trend and we are benefiting from that. Um, and kind of okay. we'll call that a tailwind. So timing is obviously something that's exceptionally important for any company success. And the fact that you guys have survived this long, again, I'll say it now, I'll say it probably 10 times in the future and probably in the post that I put out when this podcast drops. Um, timing is a huge component, but it's also, it's also that angle that find that, that excites me a lot about this is that you were not only able to test the need in the market that would be interested in this product, because we, we got to this point by saying, okay, well, what was the importance of just talking and enabling each individual investors to directly invest in finite solar X fund, as opposed to just piggybacking off just Schwab entirely, not, not a little bit of dependence, but a hundred percent of dependence on those kind of platforms. And we, we arrived at this distinction and understanding that, Hey, there's investors that find this product exceptionally interesting and climate people, they find it interesting, but usually you're starting from a finance background and saying, you know what, I like this fund, and hey, it's also climate oriented, and this is a great alternative to ESG funds that you may not be, or you may be a bit skeptical on in terms of its impact. Because if you're looking at an ESG fund, you're probably also thinking about impact, not just returns. And that's what's enabled or drove that technical decision to get that side of the platform built, which I imagine is in and of itself another big hurdle that you guys had to cross. So if you had to like summarize or or share with the audience that's tuning in right now, 
uh, again, if you when you tell me 1,200 page document, SEC approval, and then you also had to kind of build your own platform to enable people to directly invest in you, I get overwhelmed. I also haven't been in the space as an actual builder in the fintech world. So to me, that just looks like rocket science. How did you end up navigating and managing all of those things with your team behind you? Because being non-technical, but having a deep understanding of finance, which I'd argue is the proprietary thing. It seems like you guys also have something exceptionally unique on the tech side as well. But the thing that was going to make or break your company and the Finite Solar X Fund is your distinct understanding of the climate space, the timing of the market, and your background in finance really drove you to get to a point where you can even have a fund, which in your case is almost like a Series A traditional software company finally getting into the growth stage. So what would you say in your experience has been the way to navigate those hills and valleys or mountains and valleys in this case yeah so that i'm going to add one more element and then i'll answer that question directly we also uh, you know our fund is buying really small assets oh right so a solar loan is a thirty thousand dollar asset right so when you think about having a big fund with a bunch of that's something most funds either can't do or just say we'll do pen and paper and kind of hope we had to be able to digest all those assets as we bought them. So there's there's kind of a digest. unique portfolio management element to it. As the um, the loan specific information oh. is called a data tape. You have to digest that data tape as a manager and actually know, you know, we've got a thousand loans in the portfolio. Did we get paid on loan 102 this month or not? Oh. If not, why? Right? Is it because the system isn't producing energy? Is it because you know, there could have been a natural disaster in that zip code, right? So being able to zoom in on our assets um, on a one-by-one one basis uh, is, is tough. <laughs> so that all said, when, when we were kind of building these blocks of our initial fund, the, the biggest thing for us was just uh, to keep going. There were times where I think we as a team felt like we were running into a brick wall um, what was a good example of that we had okay, one one example of that is our initial fund service provider so the the fund the provider that was going to be the mm-hmm. custodian for the assets talked to them for nine months oh yeah this is really cool we want to be involved in this but we were about two and a half months from going live and they called us up and said hey our risk team doesn't think we can keep track of these assets they're too small and you're sitting there, you're like, whoa, this is unlike what I think some, you know, my, if I heard this, I'd say, well, yeah, you probably just missold what you guys were doing. Like the, you get your startup, you got crystal clear. We had sent them, you know, exactly what we were doing. We had gone through all their diligence. Everything was good. It turned out they had expected us to be a 20 to $50 million fund. And then I think as we progressed and as more people kind of saw the opportunity, they started seeing it as more of a, we'll call it $100 million plus fund over time. We think of it as more of a billion dollar plus fund over time, but they recognized at $100 million, their systems would start breaking. 
that's a pretty big, you know, punch to the nose when you're thinking, Hey, we're going live in two and a half months. This element of our business is handled and it's not only handled, it's, we've been working on this for nine months handled. Um, that's a pretty, yeah. And so, and there are multiple examples of those types of instances where you just say, yeah, like, come on. And so, uh, we were fortunate and this is where I think team and investors come in. I mean, uh, us bank, and this sounds like a negative, it's really not, they're not picking up the phone from a phone call from me, right? They're kind of like, no, nah, we've got plenty of clients. We don't need to put in that kind of brain work to figure out your strategy and launch your fund. They are picking up the phone from someone like David, right? Who can call and say, Hey, and that's where our team and investor base really kicked in as we hit some of those hurdles that I think um, a lot of companies candidly would have just said, this is too much of a headache. Let's go do something else. So that was maybe a very uh, rudimentary response to your question, but... Um, it seems like there was vision behind it because it, they saw this this undisclosed company um, they saw this as potentially growing to a hundred mil, but you mentioned you kind of see this as a potential billion dollar fund. I mean, I'd say like, screw it. Why not? Let's say yeah. a trillion, but again, it's your vision. You're coming, right? <laughs> so you're, what well, is that vision? like? We, we think of ourselves over time as a trillion That's dollar huge. asset manager. There you go. Uh, I like that. Yeah. But, and when, when you hit. Yeah. When you look at the space, and if you think just in solar, right, it's about a $15 billion mm-hmm. a year market. So that's big enough for us to build a fund around. It's not so big that you can build a trillion dollar fund, right? No, there is no real trillion dollar fund. Um, but when we look at the overall space, sustainability, the flow of capital that's needed in the space over the kind of our generation, Without knowing exactly how old you are, I <laughs> call it our generation. That's a hundred trillion dollar problem. And so when we think about the opportunity to help there, um, it's very feasible that someone will be the trillion dollar asset manager purely focused on sustainability. Um, and that includes carbon capture, hydrogen, kind of like how it's right. Are you guys targeting, so Generate Capital, um, for those of you who don't know Generate, which you should know Generate if you're watching this podcast, um, Generate's (laughs) doing late stage financing, hydrogen, DERs, electrification. It's again, sustainability oriented. Are you guys basically the early innings of Generate? So Generate's a great company. They have a phenomenal team, obviously, you know, Jigger's founder there. He's, yeah, great product team. They're actually doing more uh, brain work okay. than we want to be doing. They'll, they'll go into asset classes really when there's still a lot of technology risk, and they'll bring in highly specialized people to figure out if they can really how to price that risk. And they'll, they'll do small deals, they'll do large deals, but they'll take a lot of... Um, technology risk and subsequently get a lot of return for it. Uh, the two differences we think of ourselves as okay. the phase after generate. So when you're, when you're developing um, projects, 
generates a great first stop because they will do the framework to for a five million dollar deal. We can't do a fund that's Especially a five million dollar fund and doesn't. And right, and has a lot of risk. Even if there's upside, you know, oh, we could make twenty five percent a year. It's not the product right. we want to be offering. Um, and generate, I think, when you kind of play that out one step further, they've gone to your. Uh, initially, they went to kind of family offices, high net worths. They've now brought in some really high institutional quality, but they're your high impact, high reward, uh, slightly higher risk. Although they've, as they've grown, they've had to, I think, grow that asset base a little bit as well to be less risky. So we're that next step. Our capital should be cheaper. It should be more efficient. And as such, we're t- we should be taking a lot less risk. I find that fascinating because then... It's let's say hydrogen suddenly becomes a asset class that's mature. I'm going to use the word mature as you did in the beginning around solar. Um, it's it's almost like now once it's reached that stage, you may have finite hydrogen X, or you may have if VPPAs um, become superbly yeah. valuable and they can be bundled, then you might have finite VPPA X or again. I'd, I'd imagine the naming convention is a little bit more intelligent than that in the future, but um, yeah. I, I guess that's the general principle of the vision of how you map or help everyday people like myself just participate in funding and financing when we're not the billionaires that can make that kind of capital decision, but we can invest 500, we can in, invest five, 10, 20, $30,000 of our own money in order to help yeah. bring or drive more projects or infrastructure to be developed. That seems to be the key to your vision to getting to that rocket ship target of a trillion dollars in assets managed by yeah. finite, the entity. Is that is that a, a good playback yeah, right. of what you're building towards? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Well, I guess then the... <laughs> The, the way I'll put it is uh, it seems like that's uh, that's a recurring theme is if the if the vision and the target is that big and you see this with companies like even like Pachama and Diego and his initial founding team, yeah, the ambition is really the driving force that pushes you through the insane complexities that come with uh, building a climate related company. Yeah. I, I can speak to that as well. but um I, I think then, I'm going to leave the audience with that to chew on. And I imagine we'll have plenty to talk about in a year after seeing the activity within the fund. So we'd love to have you back on in the future, Kevin. But uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just share anything that you think the audience might want to know before uh, you go back to getting to that or getting closer to that trillion dollar asset fund. Well, look, I mean, we've kind of said it, but I'll highlight this is open to almost everyone, right? It, $500 a minimum it takes 90 seconds to become a solar investor and um, everyone should go do it. <laughs> it's, it's a it's intentionally simple process and uh, we are looking forward to kind of growing that audience and that community you awesome. spoke about. Well, I uh, hope a few people decide to go at least check you guys out. We'll have the link 
in the description in the YouTube comments as well. So I really appreciate you coming on, Kevin. I'm going to let you jump now. And uh, I can't wait to see what people say once they hear more about this. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you are listening on Spotify, please make sure to add this to your favorite episodes and also consider sharing it on social. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave a review with uh, your thoughts from this episode. And of course, to also share and subscribe to this show. The Green Room is brought to you by The Impact. There's a free newsletter that you can find on readtheimpact.com, which shares plenty of insights, as well as brand new startups that we're finding that are pre-Series A, which could be opportunities for you, your fund, or potential co-founders to really want to check out and learn from. So with that being said, this is Swarnav Espajari from The Impact. It's been great to have you, and I'll see you in the next one.